Ladies and germs, guys and gals, booze bags alike, welcome to The Alchemics Show. I am Tommy Alchemy, your humble host. They call me Tommy Alchemy because I can indeed turn base metals into gold, just as the ancient alchemists were attempting to. And if your bartender bullshit radar was going off just then, that's because it was a complete lie. But I do have the ability to take someone who was once sober and turn them into someone who's drunk. But in all seriousness, at Alchemics, we believe that the modern alchemist is the chef, the distiller, the bartender, and the people that really believe in creating something out of nothing. So this is the show where we talk about the alchemical process of cocktails, spirits, booze, and maybe even the business side of all of those things. We're doing the show because, you know, we've made videos about cocktails for a fair bit of time uh, in multiple different locations. And now for the second time, we're going to be moving. So we're kind of loading up content right now in the studio that we're in so that we have enough to deliver to the people for the rest of the year or so. And then kind of go around. We're going to definitely be uh, putting a lot into the travel series. Uh, episode one is already out now. So uh, the cocktail of the day is a Blanton's Old Fashioned. Pardon my sip. So today we're going to be going over my preferred old-fashioned recipe and a brief history of the old-fashioned. This is a tricky one. Everybody thinks they know. Most people don't. Uh, my opinion on why bourbon is superior to any other category of whiskey and why bourbon is the best, in fact, for an old-fashioned itself, although it probably wasn't always traditionally made with bourbon, uh, what bourbon is, uh, and some bourbon innovation, some titans of the industry, and how bourbon became a cult-like spirit within the last two decades or so. And uh, this video will be sponsored by Alchemics Agency, but more on that later. So my name is Tommy Alchemy on all social media. I encourage you to reach out. Whatever your preferred platform is, Twitter's a good one, and also in the YouTube comments, because I'll be reading questions live on air eventually on the show, but I am on TikTok and Instagram, Tommy Alchemy as well, so uh, any questions you may have about cocktail spirits, booze, whiskey especially, feel free to ask. So my preferred um, old-fashioned recipe, cue the B-roll.
So you would have had to have been watching on video to see that, but we just cut away to an awesome sequence of me making my preferred old fashioned. But for those of you listening on audio, I'm going to go over it as well. It's two dashes of orange bitters. I'm using a local uh, bitters from Colorado called Strong Water. They call it Mountain Bitters. Um, quarter ounce of Demerara sugar syrup. I think the Demerara sugar syrup pairs a lot better with whiskey than especially simple syrup. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Demerara sugar syrup is uh, Demerara sugar is sugar that is crystallized, but not refined like white sugar. So it comes out brown, and it pairs much better in my estimation with uh, whiskey. And then two ounces of Blanton's bourbon. Of course, it may not be sustainable to always make an old-fashioned Blanton's bourbon, but it is an incredible bourbon for an old-fashioned. It was tough to find, although I've been sitting on it for like a year, so I figured now's the perfect time. Served over a big rock uh, with a twist of orange. So comment below what your favorite old-fashioned recipe is, if you're on YouTube or in the show notes. Um... And you can also reach out to me again at Tommy Alchemy. So, the history of the old-fashioned. Now, first of all, I want to give credit to a guy called David Wondrich. Many of you probably already know who he is. In essence, David Wondrich is one of the last great journalists in any field and certainly the best journalist in the cocktail space. He dedicated his life to the history of cocktails. Classic cocktails, excuse me. And it's very hard because, you know, I like to always say that everybody was drunk when cocktails were invented, and that's an easy cop-out while it is true. But he's more like digging up the actual literature and the actual research and then all these historical papers, whether they're books or newspapers or random writings where we find cocktails. And it really is really incredible. So we're going to be taking most of our old-fashioned history from a book called Imbibe. I have it here with me. If you're watching on video, I highly recommend that you pick it up. It's an incredible, incredible book, and it really helps you understand the lineage of classic cocktails, particularly in America. So, um, you know, I just bring that up because he's he's considered to be probably the most credible source of information in terms of cocktail history. And I wouldn't go anywhere else, although, of course, we cross-reference many things whilst doing research. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't start with any other, I wouldn't start any other place if I'm trying to figure out what the history of a classic cocktail is. So, we'll be reading passages from Imbibe. Uh, It's important to understand that when we talk about the history of the old-fashioned, it almost starts with the history of the cocktail, in quotes. Because what was first to referred to as a cocktail by its uh, you know definition is what we now think of as an old-fashioned. So for a long time, before the old-fashioned had a name, the actual recipe and breakdown of the cocktail is what we now think of as the old-fashioned. So um, I know that seems a little bit confusing, but we'll get into that a little bit. So... The first time the cocktail appears in print is in uh, J.E. Alexander's Transatlantic Sketches. And I'm sa- and that's the first time, of course, it appears in print as defined as what we think of as an old-fashioned. So, you know, a cocktail would have been drunk before that, but it's just that what that recipe that's really more like a ratio 
of spirit bitters, sugar, and dilution first appears as the cocktail, not referred to as the old fashioned in 19 or 1833, excuse me, in J. E. Alexander's Transatlantic Sketches. J. E. Alexander was a British soldier and a traveler who documented his travels. And the story goes that, you know, he was sort of pandering in his writings to the U.S., in his transatlantic sketches, or just uh, whilst he was here in the U.S., because that would have been a time when it would have been considered barbaric, certainly, for... The cocktail is considered by Europeans to be barbaric, you know? As well as Europeans, even in their own countries, have a long history of isolationism, right? So... You know, the Spanish drink sherry and Spanish wine. The Italians drink, you know, Italian wine and probably Amaro. And, you know, the English drink gin and certainly wine as well. Um, Brandy and rum and other stuff as well. But uh, it's almost as if, like, the story of the cocktail goes that the actual blending of ingredients together is was considered barbaric to Europeans, almost in the same way that our... Um, are sort of uh, open, you know, compared to Europe's, uh, our open immigration policy, especially, you know, in the 18, 1900s would have been considered a little bit barbaric because we just, um, you know, there's a, there's a blending of ideas and creativity, I suppose. And the Europeans aren't really, they weren't too keen on that. So, uh, but his document showed that, quote, a cocktail is composed of water with the addition of rum, gin, or brandy as one chooses. A third of the spirit and two-thirds of the water. Add four to five dashes of bitters and enrich with sugar and nutmeg. So, you know, this is a European, a, a British person in the United States documenting, you know, how Americans would have actually made a cocktail. And it is true that whiskey is actually not even mentioned as a base spirit uh, until later. So, uh, David Wondrich notes that, uh, when the pair, uh, peripatetic, I can't read it all. When the captain Alexander got to New York, he proved that he wasn't too refined to pot the humble cocktail. Yeah. So by many, it would have con- been considered unrefined. So, If you just look again really quick at that definition, cocktail, not even a cocktail, but cocktail referring to, you know, singularly, it's composed of of water with the addition of rum, gin, brandy, as one chooses, a third of the spirit, two thirds of the water, add four to five dashes of bitters and enrich with sugar and nutmeg. This is actually why, so of course, you know, he's describing what we now think of as an old fashioned as a ratio, but not with whiskey. So this is why I actually don't mind when bars have old-fashioned variations or even call them old-fashions as the purist that I am, um, sort of a failing purist, sort of a dumb thing to be because cocktails are failing, I guess, right now. But that's neither here nor there. But I don't think it's historically incorrect, I suppose, is a better way to say it, to list a cocktail with gin, uh, brandy, rum, tequila even, as an old-fashioned. Um, because it's a breakdown, it's a ratio of sugar, water, bitters, dilution, and spirit. So, 
Um, it, you know, you can, you can, so someone tries to tell you like, you know, an old fashioned was made with whiskey always. You can be like, no, that's not right. And in fact, it wasn't even made with whiskey until later. So David Wondrous actually notes that the whiskey, that, uh, that the cocktail made with whiskey wasn't even mentioned until five years later. So just to reiterate again, what we now think of as the old fashioned was called the cocktail itself, right? So this is sort of the first time that that recipe appears in history, 1833. But then there's a timeline and we're glossing over a lot. But then in 1880, old fashioned, uh, the name is referenced in 1880. So, um, of course, we're talking about what, like a 57 year gap there. So, of course, a lot happened in between that time, especially in, in America. But uh, so the name is referenced in 1880. Uh, first, um, when Samuel Tilden, the Al this is actually a, a quote from Imbibe. Um, the first is from 1880 when Samuel Tilden, the Al Gore of his age, decided not to run for president again, prompting goal-oriented Democrats to roast uh, his withdrawal with hot whiskeys, sour mashes, and old-fashioned cocktails. Quote. So, hot, so quote, hot whiskeys, sour mashes, and old-fashioned cocktails is from the Chicago Tribune. So Samuel Tilden celebrates his resignation uh, from politics, and they celebrate with quote, hot whiskey, sour mashes, and old fashioned cocktails. Now you can, now again, you can understand that, you know, the old fashioned is not definitive here as a name. They're referring to it in the plural sense, old fashioned cocktails. But again, when they're talking about cocktails, they're talking about basically the one recipe that we had for a cocktail for, I mean, literally almost a hundred years, because it goes on even longer than this. So the name old fashioned doesn't appear until 1880. And uh, then, um, a quote from Imbibe two years later, when the Trib quizzes a, a prominent local bartender about the, what the gents are drinking, he replies, the old fashioned cocktails are still in vogue. Cocktails made of lore, sugar, and whiskey. Rye whiskey is called for more than bourbon. So then you see the actual old fashioned name referenced with whiskey in 1883. So this is a big one and I understand it's going to be a little bit tricky to remember all this. And then, you know, it's like, you know, at a certain point you're just like, okay, who cares? Uh, I'm not really opposed to what happens over time with cocktails necessarily. There's certainly a, a beauty to being able to make them historically accurate, but you also have to make a decision of like how far back do you want to go with that argument? Like, should we just, should we just make, you know, like just horrid stuff in the sun or whatever. So, you know, it is what it is, but this is the most uh, accurate documented history that we have. So just a recap, because it seems like a lot and it is 1883, the cocktail is referenced, but defined as what we now think of as the old fashioned 1880, the old fashioned name is mentioned, but in plural, then 1883, a local bartender being interviewed by the Chicago Tribune refers to old-fashioned cocktails and typically made with whiskey. In fact, rye whiskey is called for more than bourbon, he says. So, in 1888, a Chicago bartender, Theodore Pruch, 
of Shepin and Gore um, published a bar guide. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but um, yeah. So then 1888 is the first time it's actually documented as uh, an actual recipe, but uh, it's not, it's still not named the old fashioned. So it's not actually, it is true that it was historically made with rye a lot more than it, than bourbon. And, um, it wasn't actually until post prohibition. So we're talking like nearly 50 years later that there was, you know, the most famous and the most common, the most well-known, uh, it's time and place with old fashioned would have been called an old fashioned. If you take away one nugget from any of this, it would have been um, a post prohibition article written in the 1930s when an actual New York Times writer called Old Timer was lamenting the days when cocktails were made the old fashioned way, where uh, a bartender would have, quote, soaked a lump of sugar with bitters. Uh, added a lump of ice, gave it a stir, and then handed the whiskey, uh, handled, hand, handed a bottle of bourbon to the guest where they could actually pour their own drink. That was not at all an exact quote, but it was something like that. So it wasn't really until post-prohibition, which, you know, classic story of time, you know, old timers are not made, they're not, they're not happy about the way kids are doing things. So he wrote an article about, you know, how cocktails should be made, sort of. So, of course, a lot happened between that time. And we're talking about um, a huge gap between 1833 and 1933 when Prohibition ended. So 1833 being, as we talked about, when uh, the cocktail was referred to, but as the with the recipe we now know as the old-fashioned. So, of course, we glossed over a lot, and most of the lore would have happened in bars and whilst people were drunk. So it's important to always keep that in mind, but also, you know, here is the actual documentation that we have. When it came to old-timer, you know, I guess it's important to understand that the bastardization of cocktails, if you will, actually happened before the the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, where we think of now, it happened after Prohibition. Although I really doubt it was as bad. In fact, we could prove that it's not as bad because there was not as many, like, um, you know, the culture was totally different. It wasn't sex, drugs, rock and roll yet. And also mo mainly the flooding of artificial and just disgusting ingredients didn't happen uh, until that time, but he was really upset at the end of the day of when what we call what we we referred to as the first cocktail revolution actually happened post prohibition when a bunch of bartenders came back from Europe because they couldn't make drinks here, so they went there during prohibition and then brought all these in, uh, ingredients and spirits with them. So you know it's a story of as old as time. Literally, old timer was his actual pen name was just whining about the way kids are making cocktails these days. So the, the history is very rich. And so please read him by, but of course I'll link it in the description, the show notes and, and all that. It's an incredible, incredible book. You can actually treat it as sort of like a, um, a dictionary almost where you can just look up certain things. If you're interested, 
Um, and then, it, but the disco era is when the old fashioned really took a deep dive in the actual sixties, but more like the seventies and eighties. And of course, seeping into the nineties. And that's when you had, it was really just like, that was actually when the Mad Men era of like the crushed dyed cherry and all this stuff being muddled and even like club soda and all this stuff. That's when all that was introduced. And of course, like we're talking, you know, we're talking maybe 30, 40 years later, we're still experiencing the ripple effect of these just horrific old fashioned recipes. Of course, there is people that still are, you know, very adamant about returning to the classics though. The way that, you know, it's, there's obviously a fine balance, as I say, making things with the, the, like the dyed red cherry, for example, that wouldn't have even been something that was possible. You know, the number five red dye wasn't even invented when, when the old fashioned in any of these times, like when in any of these times when the old fashioned could have potentially been invented or into the hit, like that wasn't a thing. So if anybody tells you that's the way it's supposed to be made, they're wrong. That's just what it is. Um, so I don't mean to gloss over that, but that is um, a brief history actually of the old fashioned cocktail. Uh, now the reason why bourbon became the most popular spirit to use in old fashioned, you know, in essence is because of its high corn mash bill. So by the time prohibition ended, what we now know as the Buffalo trace distillery had implemented regulations for the entire bourbon industry as to, you know, what bourbon can actually be. So the biggest one is that the mash bill has to be 51% corn or more. And this almost always results in a, a much sweeter flavor profile in whiskey than um, like rye, for example, which will come out much spicier because of its 51% <coughs> uh, mash bill of rye or more. And that is only U.S. regulation. Bourbon can only be made in the U.S., but rye can actually be made other places that's where it get a little complicated but we have our own regulations for rye as well um but so you know as i say in my opinion the sweetness of bourbon really works well of course i can sip it but if you're going to add just a touch of sweetness for an old-fashioned i think it's i think it's the best spirit for an old-fashioned because we always talk about in cocktails this idea of doubling down on flavor profiles and you know, it's like you get a little bit of sweetness in the bourbon, a little sweetness from your sugar syrup, and then Bob's your uncle. So I would venture to say that the, the main reason why uh, bourbon has become commonplace for uh, an old-fashioned is for that very reason. It's because of its sweetness, because people are going to drink a little bit. An old-fashioned is a little bit sweet, of course, anyway. Now, of course, um, just to be fair, some people argue that the spice notes in rye whiskey contrast maybe some of the flavors and sweetness that you add to an old fashioned. And so rye actually works better. And again, it's not historically incorrect to make an old fashioned with rye or bourbon or literally any spirit. So just keep that in mind. Um, but that brings me to our first article where we're going to dive into um, the difference between bourbon and rye. And then get into a little bit more about uh, how bourbon really became, again, a cult-like classic in the United States. So this first article is by Drexel 
Now. And it was written in 2016 by Lauren Indigo Ingino. And it's called Bourbon or Rye. You can't tell the difference, new study says. Pardon my sip. So... It says, quote, whiskey aficionados claim that Manhattans must be made with a fiery, grassy rye, while old-fashioned requires a sweetness of bourbon. But a new study from Drexel University food scientists shows the average consumer cannot discriminate between the two flavors. That seems odd. She's, whoever this is, I don't know who this is. It's not a prominent name, especially in the whiskey business. But she's writing an article for Drexel University, which I believe is in the UK, and then referencing a study done by Drexel University. So it's clearly a bit biased, but anyway, it says Jacob Lane, PhD and assistant professor for the center of hospitality and sport management found in a blind sorting task of American rise and bourbons participants were more likely to group together products than brand products by brand than type of whiskey. The results were published in a journal of food science. And this is an example of whiskey doing well in america at around 2016 especially and then the english just not liking it and that's becoming very obvious in the writing right now and i'll pick this apart in detail so i'm not i don't want to take anything out of context i'm not just attacking them but it's like the english really have no place to talk about good whiskey in my opinion now of course again i'm biased towards bourbon that's a whole thing um I like it much more than scotch. But um, she's interviewing this guy, Jacob Lane. And he says, there's definitely a tendency for bartenders to talk about how some drinks should absolutely be made with bourbon or rye. And I think it's clear now that there's more flexibility, Lane said. In a way, it's fun and exciting. It gives a bigger universe to play with. The only legal difference between bourbon and rye product is the mash bill. Bourbon must be fermented from a mash bill that is majority corn and rye from majority of its <sighs> rye from majority rye. Otherwise, the legal stylistic requirements for the two products are identical. So the first thing is like, I actually agree that you actually don't even need a study for this because it says, um, you know, studies, uh, it says the, the average consumer. So studies show Drexel university, which is so happens to be where I work shows that the average consumer cannot discriminate between the two flavors. Well, I'm sure you don't, I agree with that. And, that, and, the, and, the, and you also do not need a study to show that. The average consumer can't tell the difference between like um, whiskey and rum. That's not relevant in any way. This isn't for you. Like the distinguishing of bourbon and rye is not for the average consumer. No offense. Like you could, every, anybody can build a palate, and, and, but just most people don't care. They just don't care. It's so stupid. It's just completely irrelevant. And it's a university paper. So what did you do? Like pull college kids? <laughs> Some like English college kids that they, they just want to get fucked up. <laughs> They're like, here, drink this. Tell me the difference. 
Like, oh no, mate, which one's stronger? <laughs> it's so idiotic. And yeah, the reason why rye works better in Manhattan and bourbon works better in old fashioned is because of the doubling down of flavor profiles and the way that, you know, people have historically always wanted something a little bit, at least in recent history, something spicy, like to in a in a, a Manhattan to balance the sweet vermouth. And of course, there's, you know, a little bit of spiciness in sweet vermouth, believe it or not, because it's just more herbal, I guess is the way to say it. But the flavor profiles work better. But yes, 99% out of people in the, the, the West, let's just say, to be fair. So let's just say England and America, 99% of the, both those countries combined will absolutely not be able to tell the difference. And that's... You know, neither here nor there. It, it's not even relevant because people, just like any other industry, the people that drink all the whiskey are the the ones, the, the people that try different kinds of cocktails and have a palate are the ones that do the most drinking. So it's like, I don't even understand that this what this is even is, but I'm not going to get, I don't want to get too caught up on it because it's written in 2016 and it's from an English college. So it just, but it, it shows you that, you know, you know, the, I, I guess that sets the stage for what the average person, even the, even people writing about it and apparently doing studies, it actually doesn't even say if these are like double blind placebo con controlled studies. And it certainly doesn't say and go into any detail about the control group that they pulled or that they, they studied or whatever, like. You know, if you go to a whiskey bar or, or people that have, you know, certifications in whiskey like myself, then yeah, you're going to get somewhere with a study, but you wouldn't want to do that because that would be harder. That would be hard work. Instead, you want to pull a bunch of drunk slobs on a college campus and ask them if they, they have a palate for something that is, you know, to be fair to your point, a little bit minute, but completely stupid. We have standards in the cocktail world, not because... We don't build our standards around what the average consumer uh, can distinguish with their palate. Anyway, before I get too off any of the weeds, this video is sponsored by Alchemics Agency. Alchemics Agency is a digital marketing agency specifically for cocktail bars and restaurants. We're a group of filmmakers, photographers, and social media strategists who all come from the hospitality industry. Alchemics acts as a turnkey marketing service completely handling Photography, videography, posting and post scheduling, email marketing, loyalty programs, paid advertising for the purpose of booking reservations, and even review management. So you only have to focus on what you do best, which is running a great bar or restaurant. We've helped bars and restaurants around the country exponentially grow their revenues and even grow their audience enough to get recognized in national and regional mags magazines building long-term sustainable branding in the hospitality industry. Get a free custom-designed business audit today, which includes tips and strategies from me personally about how you can do a little bit better of marketing your bar and restaurant on social media. And so just click the first link in the description and that will actually take you to a 30 minute presentation done by yours truly about how to launch a advertising campaign for a bar or restaurant on the smallest possible budget. Now back to the show. So I guess, you know, 
the nuanced point of view that I want to point out is that it is either it is considered correct to make a old fashioned, as we say, with literally any spirit, but particularly with bourbon or rye or even scotch, whatever, you know, but frankly, if you want to, if you want to make it the most historically accurate way, you'd make it with like gin or rum. So that's not really, there's a reason why as we've been introduced in the, in the 2000s to better processes, ingredients, spirits, literature like David Wondrich's imbibe and punch and stuff like that, that we've actually tried to make things the way that we think they're best. So there's a fine balance between getting cocktails historically right and making them palatable, you know, or just the best they can possibly be, frankly. So, um, you know, if, and if we take death and company's thesis, that there's only six cocktails, this is the entire thesis of their cocktail codex that serve as the fundamental building blocks for literally every other cocktail, then, uh, you know, the old fashioned is actually more the Sazerac as a, as a, as a, a recipe, as a ratio of ingredients, because a Sazerac would have been, it's just been around longer in its modern context. So yeah, again, what use, whatever I actually love a gin old fashioned. Um, I had, I've made one, I love it with like sweetened with honey syrup and maybe lemon bitters. It's almost a take on a bee's knees, even though it's a totally different um, ratio, but just in terms of the actual flavors that you're using. But the next time that somebody, you know, tries to argue, no, an old fashioned has been always been made with bourbon or rye or scotch or whatever. You can just be like, no, that's wrong. You're wrong. And I argue it's best with bourbon, but the main point is like nobody's judging you on how you like to drink it. And as you actually build a palate, you'll be able to decide for yourself. Like, what do you, what, what do you, what do you like best? Same with the uh, Manhattan. It's not that anybody's going to freak out and, 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 you know, start screaming at you if you order a Manhattan with bourbon or an old fashioned with gin. It's just really all about knowing what you like and knowing where to order a cocktail. But that brings me to bourbon as a category. And we're going to be getting into basically how bourbon became such a cult-like classic. There's a three-part series of articles written by Aaron Goldfarb, um, who talks about the evolution of bourbon. There's a lot of interesting nuggets that I think may surprise you. But uh, it says Aaron Goldfarb examines the 90s when small batch became synonymous with prestige and the, mob uh, and the modern bourbon craze began in earnest. So this is the first article called The Coronation of Pappy Van Winkle. It says, after hitting peak sales in 1970s and 80s, Excuse me. After hitting peak sales in 1970 with 80 million cases moved for the bulk of uh, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, bourbon was on the decline as white spirits like vodka dominated, dominated the American palate. During this glut era, more bourbon was produced than anybody wanted to drink. In desperate attempts to acquire new customers, distilleries pivoted to questionable innovations like flavored bourbon liqueurs, example, wild turkey honey, <laughs> and light whiskey. So 
you know, I've mentioned this a bunch of times before and even previously in this episode, but of course, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and this is what we call the disco era, which you can just think of as the a nightmare for cocktails, for the refined palate. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll. It was a lot of drugs in the market. It was a lot of artificial ingredients in the market. It was a middle finger to uh, history and historical practices of anything. So during that era, people just lost their palates from doing cocaine. So they just wanted to get fucked up pretty much. And this is me saying this, <laughs> but he says, uh, but he says uh, by the mid uh, 1980s, bourbon was ignored in its home country. The distilleries began to look towards Japan, whose youth were in throes of obsession with Western culture. Blanton's, the world's first commercial single barrel bourbon, became a hit in Japan after launching in 1984, as did Four Roses, a once vulnerable brand left for dead in the United States. The groundwork was being laid for bourbon makers to see new ways to region favor with American audiences. Luxury, luxury releases, limited edition bottlings, and lofty age statements. <clears throat> Here are the trends that set the foundation for the modern bourbon boom. So the Japanese, uh, you know, during this era appreciate, appreciated bourbon more than we did because they're just... They're, they're more obsessed with processes and refinement than we are probably. I mean, of course, even still today. But uh, the reality is that bourbon set the groundwork for what became Japanese whiskey and the cult-like following of Japanese whiskey today, starting at about this time. So, you know, m the great Japanese whiskey copied bourbon makers, you know, because you can't, you know, many of them, of course... They went to Scotland and Ireland and studied whiskey making, but it's well documented that they didn't actually have any interest in making whiskey the the way that um, the way that um, the UK was doing it because they're they're because by the early two thousands they were adding dyes and using old used barrels and stuff in Japanese whiskey or sorry, Irish whiskey and scotch. So the Japanese were like, why? Well, that's not even the purest or the best way to make whiskey. So they've copied a lot of actually bourbon processes. Like, uh, it has to be made in a charred new York barrel, stuff like that. And they get really serious about the barrels. That's not a law in Japan. I guess, I guess I should specify. So the, one of the, um, we talked about the 51%, mash bill of corn or more in bourbon by law it also has to be aged in a charred new oak barrel meaning it can't be aged in a a barrel that other anything else has ever been aged in before the barrels are new and you might say okay well what's the big deal there well the reality is we sell our ex-bourbon barrels to the rest of the world where they age almost everything most of the aged whiskeys especially but even tequila sherry rum they're a lot of times aged in ex-bourbon barrels because it's cheaper than building their own. And, uh, and Japanese do this to an extent, but they get super technical about the details in the wood and all this other stuff. So, but, you know, in essence, this was 1984 was the birth of small batch. And it was a very niche category, right? Because again, nobody had a palate. 
But it, again, like as it says, the Japanese were more inspired by this process of making whiskey than we were. So it says uh, today, quote, small batch is a meaningless descriptor often attached to releases comprised of 200 barrels. But back in 1988, when Booker No started selling his eponymous Booker's bourbon, it really meant something. So did the fact that Booker's was unfiltered and bottled at a scorching cast strength, around 130 proof, something that had never been done before. Uh, there's no legality, basically, and still to this day, as far as what can be considered small batch or not. So this is where you it, it pays a lot to get into the technical details of bourbon and know what you're drinking. Although I will say it's easier than Scotch or Irish because they've just used every trick in the book to market, to brand, and frankly, I haven't even been good at it and every lie on a bottle it could possibly be there. But in the bourbon industry, there's still no legal, there's no legal stipulations we qualified as small batch. So anybody could put small batch bourbon on their bottle. That's important to remember. And if anybody can do it, that's a bullshit selling point. So you'll know before you get duped. Not that, you know, of course, small batch you know, there's small batch, there's bourbons that say small batch that are great, but you have to, of course, ask yourself, okay, what does that mean? Um, how many, you know, how many barrels of this particular bourbon is there? And in many cases, the actual bourbon itself will give that answer. So that's a different story. But it says other distilleries soon followed suit, offering their small batch products like Wild Turkey Rare Breed. Um, Brown Foreman Woodford Reserve in uh, 1996 and Four Roses Small Batch in 2006. And then he goes into a category called Pappy at Your Service. It says, although a household name today, Pappy Van Winkle, was hardly Bollywood when the 20-year-old family reserve first hit liquor, liquor store shelves in 1994 at $80 a bottle. For many, the lofty price tag, albeit reasonable by, by today's standards, struck many as a desperate ploy by owner Julian Van Winkle III to save a sinking business. The grandson, Julian Pappy Van Winkle, he had taken over the old Rip Winkle distillery in 1981 when his father died. Pappy, in essence, defined a new category of quote-unquote premium bourbon. Pardon my sip. It says, when we began releasing the 12, 15, and then 20-year-old bourbons, it was easy to assume that this was just a man uh, praying he could clear out his potential overaged stock. And then the professional critics got to it. The bourbon scored 99 out of 100 at the Beverage Tasting Institute's 1998 World Spirits Championship. Eventually, food industry celebrities like Sean Brock, David Trang, Anthony Bourdain, developed their own crushes. It was a slow word-of-mouth build that ultimately lent the brand its fame and prestige. Just last year, the release of Wright Thompson's best-selling book, Pappyland, canonized the brand, and today, a full set of five annual Van Winkle releases 
goes for over $10,000 on the secondary market. Uh, yeah, so I basically, it's funny because like, you know, Alchemics is a story of the Phoenix. Everybody knows this. If they know the brand, not many people know it, but if they know the brand, because I, I talk about it a lot though, it's this idea of out of the ashes cocktails have arisen. And, you know, we talk about these um, cocktail revolutions, like the first one, again, when Prohibition ended, the second one in the early 2000s, which was like the revival of the um, disco eras, right? And then the third one, hopefully, we're going to be entering into soon, because I do believe we're in a dark age of cocktails and spirits. But that is also the sto sort of the story of Pappy because during the disco era, nobody wanted to drink fine things. He basically had Julian Van Winkle. They basically had product that they couldn't sell. So, you know, they, they, they released these 12, 15 and 20 year old products because they frankly at the time just didn't have anything else to do with them. They couldn't sell them. So it was kind of a fluke, but then it developed a cult-like following, again, by big names and all that. I didn't actually know that Anthony Bourdain was a big Van Winkle guy, but I think that's really cool because I'm a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. But um, I, I just it's poetic in its essence because it is the story of the phoenix. It is the story of rising out of the ashes of a dark age. And... Um, I actually got my first bottle of not Happy Van Winkle, but Rip Van Winkle. So I got a 10-year, actually the same time I got this Blanton's, which was a little trickier to get. Um, it was like a fluke. It was like a liquor store in a small town near where I am. Uh, it was like I was there on um, their shipment day, which was a day early because it was the day before Thanksgiving. And they weren't going to get the shipment on Thanksgiving. So it was just there. And it was like six hundred dollars, and it was you know, at the t it was still a stretch. Six hundred dollars was a stretch, and I was like, "Oh man, should I do it?" And I did it, and I still have it. If you've seen the videos, the bar is over that way. If you're watching on video, and it still sits behind me in the video, I don't have the heart to open it, but it, I will say it has tripled in price in two years. So if I wanted to get rid of it, I could make a pretty penny off of it. Um, maybe even more actually, but, uh, basically, you know, th this was before a time when these, uh, mega age statements were even released, especially in the bourbon world. And it had been, been happening a little bit with scotch, but you know, you, the story of scotch in the, is of course, I know I I'm fully aware. Don't come at me. I understand it's older than bourbon. But in the, the story of the last 40 years, honestly, is the story of Scotch playing catch-up to bourbon. Desperately. And Irish is sort of in a world of its own, but that's not, it's not even really in the conversation, even though it is historically. But this, uh, you know, I've dedicated videos to this, so don't come at me. We'll talk about it more later. But um, the writer of this article, uh, Aaron Goldfarb, uh, he has a, he basically, he goes into next how bourbon goes online. Um, and to this day, it is one of the most passionate communities of online people in the world. But 
He says, as early as 1995, back when uh, few people drank bourbon and even fewer people claimed CompuServe accounts, I actually have no idea what that is. Jim Butler, a programmer in Silicon Valley, was working on making a dedicated website for his bourbon passion. In 1997, he launched the non-commercial informational only straightbourbon.com. To assess bottles, it wasn't until 1999 when he added a forum for discussion uh, that it began changing the industry. This is so interesting, and I think it's it's a testament to being able to find um, groups of people that think like you on social media, but before that came like became like a bad thing. So people that, I mean, it's not bad, but there's obviously downfalls, but people that were super passionate about bourbon, they all gathered online in the early days. We're talking nineties, right? Um, before the dot com recession, actually. So this is, this is, I mean, in the, it's it's a it's kind of an interesting situation because in the world of whiskey that's not that long ago frankly but with the way that tech has changed since 95 97 the dot com recession you know turn of the century that i mean life is completely different now i mean i'm talking about bourbon on tiktok against my better judgment but i think the point is bourbon has always been innovative the people have been so passionate about it that is one of the first online forums, which is a really interesting nugget here, I would say. Um, he says, online members began to meet IRL in Bardstown. I'm assuming he's meaning in real life. In Bardstown, Kentucky and Santa Rosa, California, California to chew the fat and drink coveted bourbons from the past. Soon, other forums began to spin off followed by blogs, podcasts, and private members groups today. Bourbon collecting appears to exist largely in the virtual world where bottles are often traded but rarely opened. But it wasn't always that way. That is so crazy. How much longer until we have like whiskey and bourbon NFTs? Or we're in the metaverse just drinking like Pappy Van Winkle. Can I mint a Rip Van Winkle in the metaverse so that nobody else can, so that way it actually has rarity. Uh, you know, I don't know much about this, but <laughs> it seems like, you know, if if bourbon was early to the dot-com era, then they're going to be early to Web3. I don't want to pretend like I know a lot about this, but it seems like there's going to be something. The challenge is, of course, drinking whiskey, actually enjoying the in the metaverse. We'll see. (laughs) So in nineteen ninety-nine the bourbon trail was introduced, and in twenty nineteen it had nearly two million visitors. I didn't know that. I haven't had the privilege of doing the bourbon trail yet. If you have, comment below, let me know. Uh this is of course before Pendy Wandy Demic Times. 2019, 2 million visitors. Uh, The author says, for better or for worse, road trips to the trail remain a popular getaway even during the pandemic. A sure sign of the fervor of the modern bourbon nut. He's treading carefully because he's writing on punch. But yeah, I don't imagine the bourbon trail would shut down in the last two years. Uh, Kentucky was a safe haven, probably, in my assumption, for travelers. 
is from what I understand, but whatever. And then um, moving along to the second article, it's part two. And of course, again, I'll link all three articles below. This one's called the birth, the birth of the bourbon height machine. And again, this is a three-part series. He says in, in 1999, the production was at an all-time low with a mere 45, 450,000 barrels filled that year, down from well over a million in 1970. Yet there is a cautious optimism that the tide might be turning based on the wild success of bourbon in Japan. And closer to home, the more modest success of small batch releases like Booker's. But if bourbon were a to rule again in America, distilleries realize they would need to dress it in trendy new clothes. I really have to say that the Japanese do everything better than us, including drinking their own whiskey, or drinking our own whiskey. So he goes on to talk about the Buffalo Trace Distillery, which has really defined a modern age of bourbon drinking. And while I'm a huge fan of Buffalo Trace and pretty much every product that's ever come from their distillery. They try to make it seem like they have this deep, long, rich history rooted um, in bourbon. And it is true that they were one of the few distilleries to be, to be able to stay open during um, prohibition for medicinal purposes, quote unquote. So they say that it's the longest active operating distillery in America. But the fact of the matter is that it's moved a bunch of times. It's changed ownership a bunch of times and none of the recipes are the same. So while I'm a huge fan, it's just like one of those things where I got to, you know, I got to be honest. I got to tell the truth. He says the actual distilling facility itself was nothing new, having operated in Frankfurt, Kentucky since 1792 under names like OFC Distillery and the George T. Stagg Distillery. But in 1992, Sazerac Company purchased the operation in the late 1990s, rechristened it Buffalo Trace Distillery. Yeah, so it wasn't even called the Buffalo Trace Distillery until the 90s, and it had a bunch of names. Releasing its flagship Buffalo Trace bourbon, a solid shelf brand. At the same time, two decades later, thanks to the imprimatur of Pappy, whose Buffalo Trace bourbon would take over. Yeah, so it wasn't even called the Buffalo Trace Distillery until 1999. But he says, rechristened it Buffalo Trace Distillery, releasing its flagship Buffalo Trace bourbon, a solid shelf brand at the same time. Two decades later, thanks to the imprimatur of Pappy, whose production Buffalo Trace would take over in 2002, anything coming out of this location is considered bottled gold and some of the most collectible whiskey on the planet. It's not just the Van Winkles either, but also the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, Blanton's and the ever ballooning Weller line and E.H. Taylor to name a few. Yes. And I have had all these. I love all these. I'm a big fan of the distillery, but it is true. The reality is, is that it's not, it's it, it, the Buffalo trace distillery is what it is because of the early two thousands, not because of this long 200 year history. Cause again, it's been rebranded. It's been renamed. It's been actually moved. The facility has moved an actual big portfolio. Sazerac, portfolio's massive bought it you know so the the buffalo trace and like this it's like the the oldest or whatever and then they say that you know that 
even on their website that that, that it was named after the traces that buffaloes would follow the traces they left um after the revolutionary war and it led them to a plot of water or something like that but it, it's just the branding was brilliant starting in the early 2000s the the history before that almost doesn't matter because you know it's not like there's whiskeys that come from that era the 90s and aughts as people say buffalo trace distillery to find in my opinion the last two decades of bourbon and again i'm a huge fan I do think that from a branding perspective, it would make actually more sense if they focus more, like if they actually focused on what they've done for bourbon in the last 20 to 25 years, as opposed to being like the oldest or whatever. But they like, look, look, they sponsor, they've always been privy. They sponsor Joe Rogan, which is a genius thing. Like it's people probably unexpected. It's a genius sponsorship. Um, because there's no direct translation of revenue that they can actually trace because you have to buy whiskey mostly in liquor stores. So, you know, I'm a huge fan. It's just important to understand that, that like, you know, 1792 whiskey would have take, tasted nothing like it did today, which is when basically they say it was the old, when the distillery was founded. So by the uh, he the author says by the late aughts, which I, I don't know why I don't like it when people say that. It just seems... I don't like the way that sounds, but anyway. By the late aughts, the growing world of bourbon collectors had begun using eBay and Craigslist to buy and sell uh, the rare limited editions that had just started infiltrating the market. To resell without a license was illegal, and eventually both websites banned the practice. In 2010, however, Facebook introduced a private group setting. This functionality allowed collectors across the country to gather under headings like Strong Water Showcase and BSM, Bourbon Secondary Market, where seemingly unmonitored, they could elicit, illicitly sell LEs, limited editions, just like Silk Road, the illegal drug marketplace that was forming on the dark web. Facebook, for the first time, offered unfettered access to Pappy and its ilk. In turn, this generated the true market values for long underpriced bottles and eventually influenced the decisions that bourbon companies themselves would make for the next decade and beyond. So you can't even talk, you can't even have a conversation about selling online without talking about bourbon. I mean, this is this is a huge breakthrough. It's just a lot of people don't know that. And one of the earliest cases, apparently, of um, you know fraudulent selling online was like counterfeit rare bourbon, limited edition bourbon. This is like before the sneakerheads, and I understand that this is probably far less cool. But uh, yeah, bourbon is like the hipster of like the sneaker drops and all this other stuff. I'm def I'm not plugged in, but it is interesting because uh, you you know there there's bourbon and its success sort of work in conjunction with the success of the internet with the introduction of the internet, which I I just think is pro- it's got to be a huge testament to its success, of course with a gr- with just great products too. And then 
The final article in this three-part series called Bourbon Thrives in a Post-Pappy Era. He says, uh, by 2010, bourbon was finally enjoying an upward trajectory in America. It had become an almost $2 billion industry with 135 million liters sold that year. Remarkably, by the end of the decade, both these totals would nearly double. An impassioned community was beginning to form, demonstrated by the crop of dedicated whiskey emporiums propping up across the country. This is right around the time that scotch by 2010 they started dying their whiskey and people get mad at me for even saying that fact but it's what it is you can look it up almost all scotch has caramel color in it which i think I have an extreme position, I think, compared to most people on the matter, but I think it's almost fraudulent. Like, for a scotch, you know, a lot of them are pretty transparent about the recipes and good on them and the whole thing, but for a scotch to to list on their website, for example, that the only things that it's made with in, is, is like um, water, caramel color and uh malt or malted barley that's like a transparent company you know there's ones like glenn Fittich that uh they list it straight up on the website so does monkey shoulder there might be some legalities in europe that 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 force them to do that but i mean the point is that's considered transparency like that that would be considered pure i suppose god knows what else other scotch companies are adding with bourbon you 100% know that the color is naturally extracted from an oak barrel because you're not allowed to add caramel color to bourbon and it has to be aged in a charred new oak barrel which is really what defined an entire category and is why I say I said earlier that the Scotch and Irish are playing catch up, especially Scotch, because you know this is around the time they started dying their whiskey. Because what happened was there's a huge spike in demand for bourbon, and that was even in Europe, and people thought it was attractive because of the dark, deep, rich color. If you drank Scotch back in the days, you know even even the nineties, but especially the 70s, 80s, it, it was never as dark as it is now because of the aging process. It's not as pure as bourbon. So they started dying their whiskey. And to me, that's fraudulent. I don't like it, you know, because, you know, the visual component is a big part of drinking and not to mention caramel color is not good for you. There's been a bunch of studies on this and, so, and now almost all Scotch ads die to their whiskey. So, you know, I know I'm, I'm like a loose cannon to some people because they don't even like that I say it. But it debunks all this bullshit about that Scotch purists like to get into. They dye their whiskey to color it to change the perception. I don't understand why more people wouldn't think there's something wrong with that. Anyway, he says, Now in 2021, even more bourbon makers have burst into the scene, showing promise for future in which you still won't get your hands on a bottle of Pappy or Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. And that's fine. With Bourbon Red Hot, new brands beginning to be, began springing up left and right 
hoping for a piece of the pie. High West opened up in Park City, Utah in 2006. Smooth Ambler arrived on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia in 2009, followed by Redemption Rye, Templeton Rye, and Bullet Rye. Whiskey aficionados loved them all, but then, in 2014, the Daily Beast Eric Felton rocked the industry with an incendiary, incendiary article, your craft whiskey is probably from a factory in Indiana. It revealed all of the uh, newfangled, critically acclaimed whiskey that was actually coming out of the hulking factory known as the Midwest Grain Products, or MGP, in Lawrence, Indiana. Yeah. So, this is not a secret, but... Something like 60% of American rye and even a large portion of bourbon comes from Midwest grain products. And what MGP is, is what they call a contract distilling firm. And it's not like this only happens in America, right? This happens everywhere. But it is kind of a big deal because... Here's how the story goes. And I think Ireland is a good example for for now. And I'm not glazing over the fact that this is happening in the U.S., but Ireland is a good example because Conor McGregor recently exited his uh, Proper 12 whiskey for something like $100 million. Um, So, of course, I think by... Don't quote me on this, but I believe it's the same parent company that owns Jameson or the portfolio. They they contract to still as well. So if I'm Conor McGregor and I have a lot of money and I want to get into the whiskey business, you'd say, okay, you know, that sounds great. It sounds awesome. But most regulation across the world or the West, you know, your whiskey has to be aged for a minimum of three years. It varies by category and blah, 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 blah. But that's a, that's a good general rule. So, you know, it can take 10 years to start a, a whiskey company, like at minimum. If you wanted to start now from scratch, and even then it would be a small start. Because if you have to age for three years minimum, you first of all, you better have a ton of capital up front. I don't think that was a problem for him. But you also better have time. So what, you know... MGP and their brilliance and contract distillers, you know, that exist in Europe as well. They say, okay, well, we're just going to be constantly pumping out bourbon and rye and whiskeys with different recipes. So we'll just contract distill it and give people the ability to slap their name and label on it and branding. And it's brilliant if you think about it. And there's success stories that have, you know, started with contract distilling and then eventually... After they were successful, they were able to, you know, move into their own facilities. But, you know, you can't blame people because it's a ridiculous amount of money up front to bootstrap a whiskey business. So, you know, MGP, I don't know exactly when it was started, but I know that a lot of your favorite products are contract distilled. So this is why bourbon has a cult-like following is because it happens less than with bourbon than in other categories. I mean, that's one of the reasons. And, you know, places like the Buffalo Trace Distillery, although they sold to Sazerac, they still come from a distillery in Kentucky. And, you know, things get murky when whiskeys are contract distilled in these massive facilities with companies that make 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other products with other recipes, you know, there, there's always the, the question of like, are they moving whiskey around? This just happened recently, actually, in my home state in Colorado, which we may get into later. I can't, I'm not sure that I can even get into the details, but it's a local Colorado whiskey that got busted for doing this. So unfortunately, if you're not willing to do the research as far as where your whiskeys come from, a lot of times it could be contract distilled. Many people don't care, but uh, that just is what it is. And that's, um, in my estimation, why the Buffalo Trace Distillery has become so popular is because of their transparency, pumping out great products, and really their ability to move in conjunction with the online world, sort of, and with technology and with innovation. Like the Buffalo Trace Distillery was the first distillery to introduce um, uh, steam uh, heating, steam in facilities. Because when it got cold, whiskey would be stagnant and it's aging. So they've always been an innovative brand. And they're not contract distilled, just to be clear. I was using that as an example um, for context. So that's all there is for today. Um, do me a favor, comment below your old-fashioned recipes and any other questions you have about the old-fashioned and bourbon. I do feel like we covered a lot so any insights, any other insights you might have about, you know, like the um, the length of episodes or topics you'd like me to go into here at the Alchemist Show, please let me know, and um, we'll probably end up doing them. There's all there's just a lot to cover. So comment, like, and the best thing you can do for us is to share the video if you like what we do here. And as always, I'm Tommy Alchemy. Cheers. <laughs>